Be holy, for I am holy. That's God's command to us. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about holiness, or as the uh, Bible talks about the process, sanctification. See, the next couple of chapters of First Thessalonians are all about holiness and sanctification. We're now in the heart of Paul's letter, and here we see Paul's heart. First Thessalonians is really a love letter. You see his love just filling the letter. Well, what do love and holiness have to do with each other? This morning what we want to do is explore that relationship, see what they have to do with each other. Talking about holiness or sanctification is, uh, may seem like a real stale, deep theological exercise. But what we're going to discover is that it's very simple, very practical. Jesus said, I have sanctified myself, that is, I've made myself holy so that they may be made holy. Speaking of you and I, so that we may be made holy. Several times throughout the gospel, Jesus makes it clear that his purpose was that we become holy. That's what he came for. You see, holiness and sanctification is the goal of the Christian life. It's, what, it's the focus of our lives. But what is it? Um, those of you that were here last week heard David explain a little bit of what holiness is, define it a little bit for you, but I'd like to expand on that. As he said, there are several things in the Old Testament that are referred to as holy. There's uh, the holy prophets, the holy temple, the holy law, the holy people. Holy, in its most basic meaning, means set aside, special. Something that was holy was special. It was set aside for God's exclusive use. You see, His holy prophets were to speak His words. They were set aside to reveal His message, no one else's. The uh, holy temple was set aside for the worship of him alone and no other. So in Leviticus 11, when God says, Be holy, for I am holy, what he's saying is, Be special, be different, because you belong to me, and I'm different than all the other things that people worship. So, holiness is the quality of being different, being special, or as the old writers used to put it, being peculiar. I look around and I see that uh, quite a few of you have that being peculiar business down pretty well. <laughs> but what is it that should make us peculiar? What is it that should make us special or different? Is it that we, uh, we wear different clothes? We use a different language? That we uh, eat and drink different things, have different activities, uh, drive a different car? I mean, we may try through some of these things to be different, but what should really make us special? Again, what made the things in the Old Testament holy was that they belonged exclusively to God. They were set aside exclusively for His purposes. So what we're talking about, what God wants for us is to be His exclusively, not the prophets weren't sometime for him, sometime for something else. The holy things were always and only for him. And that's what he wants for us, to be always 
and only His. To belong to Him entirely. To love Him with all of our hearts and our soul, our mind, and our strength. We're always and only His. So we are to be holy, but what does that look like? John White, in his book, uh, The Fight, it's one of the best books I've ever read, by the way. If you get a chance and you have not read it, I encourage you to. But he describes what comes to his mind when he thinks of holiness. He says, thinness, hollow-eyed gauntness, beards, sandals, long robes, stone cells, no sex, no jokes, hair shirts, frequent cold baths, fasting, hours of prayer, wild rocky deserts, getting up at 4 a.m., clean fingernails, stained glass, and self-humiliation. But is that the uh, biblical description of holiness? Is that what someone who belongs entirely to God looks like? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 3. There I think we gain a little bit better perspective on what holiness looks like. We're going to be looking at the last part of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. But I'd like to start with the last three verses in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. And then we'll back up. 1 Thessalonians 3, starting with verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men just as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. See, this is Paul's prayer for them. He begins by, by asking that God would remove any of the impediments that were standing in his way of visiting them because he very much wanted to see them, wanted to be with them face to face. But then he expresses his goals for them. And notice they're exactly the same goals that Jesus has for us. He said there that they might be established, or that, that he may establish your hearts, verse 13, unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. The goal that Paul had for them is that they be established blameless in holiness. Now notice the precondition to this. That verse uh, 13 starts with a so that. Well, what's the precondition to them becoming blameless in holiness? The means, the vehicle by which they will become blameless in holiness. There in verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men. You see, the Lord causing them to increase and abound in love was the precondition, was the avenue by which they would become blameless in holiness. So again, we begin to see the relationship between holiness and love. That phrase, increasing and abounding, I think is an interesting one. It means to fill up and overflow. If you take your, your bathtub, open the faucet wide open, plug the drains, it will fill up and overflow. When my daughter Holly was a baby, we accidentally left one of her diapers in the toilet and flushed the toilet. And to my horror, the toilet increased and abounded. <laughs> See, the picture here 
is that we become so filled with God's love that it overflows, that we can't hold it in. What God wants for us is to so enjoy belonging to Him, so delight in His love that we can freely and joyously lose ourselves in loving each other. We don't have to to think, well, I'll look foolish or nobody else does this. Now, we are free to go for it, to really love. You know, Paul wasn't holding back. Jesus didn't hold back. We can follow their example rather than our culture. This is incredibly freeing to realize we have that privilege. It becomes our delight to give ourselves in love. The result of this loving abandon was so that our hearts may be established, blameless in holiness. Blameless in holiness, I think, is another interesting phrase. It refers to being without uh, defect or fault when it comes to holiness. It comes from the Old Testament concept of the contamination of something that was set apart for God. If something that was holy was ever used for any other purpose, it became defiled and was no longer of use for God. See, the idea here is that he wants us to have no area of our lives, no attitudes, no activities that we're holding back from God. Blameless in holiness means entirely His, holding nothing back. Follow this. If we set out to be loving like God loves, and this will point out more of that relationship between love and holiness. If we set out to love like God loves, if we give ourselves to God for Him to express His love through us, throw ourselves into it entirely, very quickly we are going to discover things in our lives that we're holding back. When we are confronted with somebody's financial need, somebody in the church or for a financial need in the church itself, we'll discover that we're holding back our money because it's awfully hard to peel our fingers off it. Or when we want to spend time with someone, we'll discover that we're holding back for our comfort. We're holding back our privacy. It's just hard to give it up. We don't want to give it up. And in fact, we refuse. When we're trying to love somebody who is difficult, we'll discover that our pride and defensiveness well up, slam us in the face. When we really try to love people, that's when we see ourselves as we really are. That's when we see our weakness and our need. Before I was married and had children, I thought I was a pretty together guy. I was pleased with myself. It wasn't until I really tried to love someone that I discovered how far I've got to go. It's worth noting, I think, that the precondition to holiness is not doctrinal purity. As important as that is, and that is important. Nor is it knowledge, though knowledge of Scripture and truth is a very valuable, necessary pursuit Precondition to being blameless in holiness is not obeying all the rules. Even though God has given us some rules that if we ignore, we can't really love, we can't be holy because we will be entrapped and enslaved by sin. 
It's the point Paul will make in the next chapter, chapter 4, that sin enslaves us, and when it's got its grip on us, it's in conflict with belonging to God, with true holiness. The two are incompatible. However, the precondition to being blameless in holiness is not obeying all the rules, nor is it uh, belonging to the right church, even though that may be comforting. The precondition to holiness is that we love other Christians, no matter who they are, no matter how obnoxious they are, no matter how much we disagree with them, no matter what they smell like. And we love all men. These are the preconditions. These are the things that, that Paul describes as setting us up to become blameless in holiness. You see, a focus on the other things, on, on knowledge or doctrine or church, or rules. And again, I don't mean to disparage these things. These are good, valuable things. But a focus on them leaves us vulnerable for contamination in our attitudes. Things start worming their way in. Pride, party spirit, self-righteousness, bigotry, envy, gossip. You see, these are the kinds of things that give us our false picture of holiness in the first place. Someone who is focused on doctrine or on rules and is very stale and sober and stern and harsh and unloving. That's our picture of holiness. But it's the wrong picture. It's the wrong focus. It's putting the priorities on the wrong things. Well, why is love so essential to holiness? If you remember, Holiness means belonging exclusively and entirely to God's to God. What God does with things that are set aside for him is to reveal himself through it. What he did with his holy prophets was to reveal his word. What he did through his holy temple was to reveal his majesty. What he did through his holy law was to reveal his righteousness. His plan for His holy people was to reveal His character to the nations. So our holiness must reveal Him and He is love. He's the power, He's the wisdom, He's the strength behind our love. Then holiness looks like love. That's what it looks like. And Paul, if you notice, gives himself as an example of what this love looks like. He said there in verse 12, he said, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you. You see, Paul's love for them was to be a model for what this love would look like. So what we want to do this morning with the time that we have remaining is to look at that model. Look at that example. How Paul loved. We already began seeing that back in chapter 2, for those of you who have been here a couple weeks, where Paul talked about himself loving as a nursing mother, tenderly, or loving them as a brother, or loving them as a father, giving them guidance and direction and encouragement. Well, we want to now look into our passage, starting with chapter 2, verse 17. Verse 17, But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person and not in spirit, 
we are all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Notice that Paul uses the term bereft of his separation from them. That's that's a term that's used when somebody we love, someone close to us, dies. That's a painful experience. It overwhelms our thoughts and our emotions. And Paul is identifying with that. He's saying, my separation from you hurts like that. It's overwhelming me. It's overwhelming my thoughts. It's overwhelming my emotions. Because Paul really cared. We'll see over and over throughout the chapters, uh, chapter 3, that Paul expresses that desire to be with them because they are so important to him. Well, why are they that important? Why are they so important? He tells us right here. He says, you are our hope. You are our joy, our crown of exaltation. You are our glory. Now, what's he talking about? These people are his glory. Well, God has placed in each of us a desire for our lives to count for something. I mean, we all want glory. We all want joy. We all want exaltation. When the game's over, as Paul puts it, at our Lord's coming... When everything's said and done, we want to be able to say our lives counted for something. And whatever it is we think will do that for us, whatever will give us this glory, this joy, this exaltation, this becomes the thing we live for. This becomes the focus of our life. This becomes the emotional center of our lives. The answer that society gives for what will will provide these things for you, what will provide glory and joy and and exaltation is money. That's the focus of our culture today, as Francis Schaeffer put it. Personal peace and affluence. Why do people pursue money? I mean, money is just dirty scraps of paper. But there's a feeling that the things that money can buy will fill us with joy. I mean, it feels good to buy something new. So we think, that feels good to buy a lot more and bigger and better things is going to feel even better. It's going to fill us with joy and exaltation. And money seems to be security. Our our hope for the future is directly tied to our wealth or our ability to earn wealth. Money is glory. It's a measure of success and therefore of identity and value as a person. People say in hushed tones, you know how much that guy's worth? You see, these are the things that we want. When Becky and I, a couple years ago, went to uh, Victoria on vacation with Holly and Jessica, our daughters, we went to the Empress Hotel for high tea. That place is full of wealth. It was incredibly elegant. There were, there were servants by each table in formal dress. And they served the tea out of individual silver teapots. And it felt wonderful to sit there sipping our tea. (laughs) But it was terribly seductive. I mean, we enjoyed people walking by and noticing us there. (laughs) 
We had the illusion of being rich and therefore of being important. See, that's what glory is all about. A desire to be valuable, a desire to be important, to be respected, to be admired. We all want that. You know, think of your own fantasies. Don't they revolve around you doing something or being someone that everyone admires because you, you saved the day or you were so good at some sport or, or you were so wise or so beautiful? You know, this is our desire, our hunger for glory, for joy, for exaltation. But money is only one of the ways we pursue that. But it doesn't work. The joy we get from new things actually diminishes with the number of things we get to the point where the truly rich can easily become bored. And there's no security in money, in wealth. It can be wiped out suddenly and immediately by a crash in the, in the stock market or an illness or a million other things. You see, there is no lasting hope. There's no real glory. There's no joy, no enduring joy in any of these things. But until we discover where real glory and hope and joy come from, we'll end up pursuing all the wrong things in life. You see, whatever we think will give us these things, that becomes the focus of our attention. That becomes the emotional center of our lives. And it pulls us into pursuing wealth, and power, and degrees, and education, and knowledge, and romance, and sophistication, or anything that we expect will give us glory and hope and joy. These things become the emotional center of our lives. Where did Paul find these things? What was the emotional center of his life? Well, that's what he just said there in verses um, 19 and 20. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. People were his glory and his hope and his joy. People were the emotional center of his life. Now, it wasn't that his hope was that people would like him, that they would think highly of him. His joy wasn't in getting strokes from people or being famous. Now, his joy, his hope, his glory was seeing God radically love people through him. You see, his focus was on loving them, not pleasing them. At times, those two things are miles apart. In fact, Paul had to frequently displease people in order to love them. He had to confront them. He had to do things that lost respect in their eyes. But he did them because he loved them. Paul's joy was seeing the character of God expressed in the way he loved people. His hope was in God's ability to profoundly help and heal people through him. You know, the incredible things that God had done to love people through Paul were his glory. That was the thing that he knew 
mattered. He said, when the Lord comes, when you die, when it's all over, when it's said and done, that's what's really going to matter. You see, everything else is temporary. People are created for eternity. There are other things that we can invest our lives in. But God expressing His love to other people through us was the emotional center of Paul's life. What is the emotional center of your life? What do you think about all the time? What, what do you pursue? Is it wealth? Is it comfort? Maybe recreation, hunting, fishing? Is it uh, romance or reputation? Being holy means that people, your family, hurting people in this church, people around you at work who are struggling, people become the emotional center of your life. Loving them becomes the emotional center of your life. But if you make the decision to do what's necessary, if you ask God to make loving people the emotional center of your life, and you start the transformation process, realize from the start that there will be costs. It will be expensive. There are three or four costs mentioned in our text. Um, Before we get on to the next chapter, to chapter 3, notice that Paul has already said more than once he wanted to go be with them. He wanted to visit with them, see them face to face. But Satan thwarted him. Satan frustrated him. Realize, if you commit yourself to God, to be used by Him to express His love to people, if you really throw yourself into loving people, there will be fierce spiritual attack. There will be opposition. There will be frustration. You know, think about it. Why is it that when you finally decide to spend time with your family, find out how your kids are really doing, everything hits the fan at work? I mean, you're needed for overtime. All your attention and energy is drawn there, and you're under all kinds of pressure. Or when you finally do get that time, you sit down with your kids and you ask them some questions and their attitude just bugs the heck out of you. And all you want to do is pop them and get out of there. (laughs) You know, that tension rises up. Or or, or maybe you've decided to get together with a, a small group of women to encourage each other and to spend time in the Word. And suddenly you just realize how far behind you are on all those projects and all that housework. On growth group night, you are deathly tired. You know, you make a decision to help someone financially, and immediately all these fears descend on you about your own financial future. What if I need this? What if, I, what, what, what if this happens or that happens? We become overwhelmed. A friend of mine made the observation that letter writing is a very simple process. Very a project that doesn't take much time, but it can be so encouraging to people. It can affirm your affection for them. But for some of us, it's the hardest thing in the world to do, to sit down and actually write that letter. 
you know, or, or for some reason, getting together with other Christians, even though it's thoroughly delightful and refreshing when you do it, when you're thinking about it, it just seems so hard and tiresome. Why? Because the enemy wants more than anything to defeat our desire, to suppress our desire to love. He'll throw our own emotions back at us. He'll pressure us. He'll distract us because he wants more than anything to frustrate our desire to love each other. As Steve Zeisler put it, Satan is committed to keeping us from having deep and valuable Christian relationships. There's a war going on, and one effect of this war is to keep Christians from being able to love each other. That's his plan. That's his desire. Well, how do we deal with this? How did Paul deal with this? Look at uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, As we night and day Keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. You see, Paul goes to the one in charge. God's in charge. God can handle Satan. All we need to do is earnestly go to him and talk it over with him. And then keep trying. Don't give up. Persevere. You know, it's hard. It's frustrating. It's tiring. It it, it requires energy. But we can pursue this knowing that the enemy can impede us. He cannot defeat us. We're going to win. We can write that letter. We can make that phone call. We can overcome that weariness and go see that person or go to that gathering. We need to come to the Lord in prayer and then keep trying. Well, the other costs are found in in, uh, the next chapter, chapter 3. Let me read the first five verses. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed... When we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it has come to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. See, the other costs involved have to do with the emotional pain and discomfort of loving other Christians, and the hurt caused by the rejection by unbelievers. Notice what Paul says in verse 1 and then again in verse 5. He uses a phrase, when we could endure it no longer. When I couldn't endure it any longer. Now realize Paul is no lightweight. Paul could endure a lot. When he was uh, beaten And put in prison in Philippi, he sang. There's no problem. He could endure that. When he was shipwrecked, he took care of the other passengers. He could endure that. When he was stoned and left for dead, he got right back up, went back into town and started loving people again. Paul was tough. He could endure a lot. But what really got to Paul emotionally was his concern for other believers. He says, sometimes I just can't take it. 
It's too heavy. It hurts too much. You see, when we really love people, it hurts to see them going through some struggle and to struggle with them and to hurt with them at some loss or some confusion. It's scary to go through a time of questioning with someone. It's hard to go to someone who, who is trapped in some sin and talk to them about it. I remember one time going to a friend of mine who was uh, doing something destructive, and I went as, as gently and as kindly as I knew how, and it still blew up in my face. He got angry. He uh, told me I was just throwing my weight around, that I was acting unloving. If we love like God loves, we will be misunderstood, just as He is misunderstood. When we really love people, we will go unappreciated. Often we will be unnoticed. When we really care about people, we'll feel their pain and it hurts. So know that going into it. Loving costs. But when we look at Jesus, we realize that it's worth it. We realize that suffering is part and parcel of loving. Suffering is the inevitable result of loving in a fallen world. Jesus suffered to save us. It was through His suffering that He unleashed the power of His resurrection. You see, it was the means and the method of His ministry. We see the quality of His love for us By his willingness to suffer. He gave up everything on our behalf. And for us, the same thing is going to be true. That people are going to be most profoundly affected by our willingness to hurt with them. To hurt for them. To suffer. This is what suffering for and with Christ is all about. It costs us some of our things as well, some of our time, some of our energy, some of our money. See, a lot of people have the illusion that holiness means you give up everything you've got. You live in a little one-celled room with barely enough to eat, to live on. You've given everything else away. And you stay up all night, go without sleep to prove your holiness. Well, see, there is no value in doing without things. There's nothing intrinsically virtuous in giving away your, your, your possessions or your money. There's nothing intrinsically virtuous about staying up all night or going without food. It's useless. There's no point in it unless it takes that to love someone. See, Paul in our passage was in Athens and he was discouraged. His ministry in Athens was tough and he was confused and he was hurting and he needed companionship and encouragement and friendship, but he was willing to do without it. He sent Timothy to Thessalonica because he loved those people. Paul would never go alone. Paul always took people with him because he knew he needed it. But he was willing to give that up to love them. If it takes giving up of our our money or our things to love someone, so be it. If it takes going without some sleep now and then or going without food, then we're willing to do it. Not because there's virtue in the thing itself, but it's part of the way we love people. Paul also says, he pointed out, he had warned them in advance how non-Christians would respond to their love. He said they would reject you. 
They'll persecute you. Persecution simply means chasing away. And this can be institutional, where society chases people away by putting them in jail or killing them. Or it can be far more subtle, as in most of our experience. There's just a, a social snub, a personal rejection, a pushing you away. And it hurts. It hurts to be rejected by someone because you cared enough to warn them of the wrath to come. It hurts to be known around the office as a Jesus freak and to be avoided. It hurts to be uh, sitting in a classroom and your professor is mocking the Scriptures or, or Christ and telling about how Christians are destroying our culture and our society. It's much easier just to keep into yourself, to not care, to stay in your little Christian club. In general, loving, caring makes us vulnerable and we will get hurt. And the more we care, the more that loving people is the emotional center of our lives, the more we will get hurt. The more it will hurt. But again, this is what suffering for Christ, suffering with Christ, is all about. Well, is it worth it? Let's listen to Paul. Paul says, But now that Timothy has come, I'm reading from verse 6, chapter uh, 3, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long also to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks could we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day render, uh, excuse me, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. You see, Paul is overflowing with joy and, and, and excitement and praise. He, he's, he's, he's overflowing with delight and he's drawing close to God in gratitude. He can't even think of the words to express to God how grateful he is and how delighted he is. You ask Paul, is it worth it? And he says, you bet it is. There's nothing better. This is life. You know, the alternative is a bland, passionless life, distracted into seeking joy and glory down a hundred dead ends, investing our lives in things that just don't matter. So let's do it. Let's repent of lesser ambitions. Let's ask God to make loving people the emotional center of our lives. Let's depend on Him to give us the wisdom and the strength and the fortitude to do this. Let's put ourselves in places where we can do this. I think of the, uh, the men and women who are ministering to the children of our single parents in the Salt, uh, Salt Children's Ministry. They're investing in these kids' lives. They're giving up their time, their energy, their Friday nights. Or the women who are hosting Bible studies in their homes, making the, the, the effort there. Or the Sunday school teachers who really love those children, really care about those kids. Or the people who are investing themselves in our youth ministries, 
are the men and women who are starting to look at their place of work as a place to love people, a place to minister. The students who care what's going on in the lives of the students around them are the men who are coming together in dad's groups to learn how to love their wives and their children. And I think men are some of the greatest casualties of our culture's confused focus, our, conf- our, our culture's confused ideas of where to find joy and glory. We get so easily and so thoroughly sucked into these false goals, these false priorities. And the, the result is disastrous. On a retreat I was on recently... The speaker asked, what is the one thing you would change about your, your home growing up? And out of 100 people, over 40 of them said exactly the same thing. They all said, I wish my father had shown that he loved me. See, men, your children desperately need for you to get your focus right. Your wives are longing to be loved. God has commanded, be holy, for I am holy. And now we know that what that means is be entirely mine and love like I do. Well, how can we do this? I'm reminded of the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, that's what we do. We look at Him. And as we see Him as He is, as we look intently at Him, we begin to become like Him. We see Him by spending time with Him and spending time in His Word, seeing what He is really like. Look at Him. Look at how much He loves you. Enjoy it. Delight in it. Luxuriate in it. Let it fill you and overflow. Let's pray. Lord, we are so easily distracted. Our priorities so easily get drawn to to other things, things that really can't give us glory, can't give us joy, exaltation. Lord, I ask that you would pull our hearts to you, that we would look intently at you, see you, see how much you've loved us, see how willing you were to suffer, not because you were foolish, but because you knew the joy that was on the other side. Lord, we too want that joy. We want that glory. We want that exaltation. Lord, make loving people in your power, your strength, and your wisdom this emotional center of our lives. We ask you that knowing the cost, but willing to pay the cost for the glory involved and for the joy that's set before us. We praise you in your son's name. Amen.